As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible once again and turn to James chapter 3. We come to verses 13 through 18 tonight. So really the second half of chapter 3 is what we want to look at together. And it's true that uh, we confess God's word is clear. And this is one of those uh, passages that is frankly so clear it needs little explanation. But words, we must give it as God wants us to study it together tonight. And so let me just read it for us, verses 13 through 18, and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So here now, once again, as God speaks to you through his word, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do pray that you would sow the truth of your word into our hearts this evening. That with hearts ready to receive it, we might listen with earnestness. That we might hear with meekness. That your word would do in us that which you have promised for it to do that it would indeed not return void of accomplishing your purpose. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it was something like about 10 years ago, a little bit longer than that, I suppose, a man named Forrest Finn, who is a well-known art dealer in Santa Fe, uh, was publishing his memoir that was titled, oh, what was it titled? In Search of Lost Treasure, something like that. Anyways, he was on his publicity tour for this memoir, and he managed himself to get on the Today Show. And part of the reason why is because within his memoir, he had included a poem, and it was a rather interesting poem, because within the poem was nine clues that led to a treasure that he had stashed away to be found, a treasure that was over a million dollars worth of gold and jewels and Find diamonds, and so he was announcing this treasure quest, this treasure hunt on to Today's show. And within an hour, that show's website it crashed altogether. Such was the interest from the international treasure hunters. And I suppose, children, that if you've read stories in school, or perhaps seen shows, or watched movies along the way, you kids have probably come across a, a treasure quest. And I would imagine if you're anything like a normal child, you would like to go on a treasure quest one day. And the reason I tell you that is because what we come to tonight is what the Bible so often portrays as a treasure to be found. It's a quest of spirituality. It's something that another book in the Bible says is to be valued as more worthwhile than gold, as more valuable than silver. Even any treasure you might find, any great desire you might have can't compare to this. So what is the great treasure quest of God's word for God's people, but pursuing wisdom. Pursuing wisdom. Now we've said if you've been with us throughout our studies, a couple of times along the way, we've mentioned how people have sometimes referred to James's book as like the New Testament Proverbs because of the pithy descriptions and definitions of spirituality it gives. It just dispenses with wisdom here, there, and everywhere throughout the book. But sometimes you want to ask the question, 
Well, how do you know if someone has true wisdom? How do you know if they've actually found that treasure that we're commanded to seek after with all of our being? Well, this is a text that means to answer that question in the clearest way possible. As it's going to portray before us a false path of wisdom and a true path of wisdom. A wisdom that comes from earth and a wisdom that comes from heaven. A wisdom that comes from down below, it says, and a wisdom that comes from up above. And so we want to see in verse 13 is simply the demand for wisdom. And then we'll spend most of our time, however brief the meditation is, in verse 14 through 18, on the difference between wisdom. So there's a demand for wisdom, and then there's the difference between wisdom. And look again at verse 13, this question that James starts with, who is wise and understanding among you? And if you've ever taught a Sunday school class before, I know many of you have, you know you can ask questions in a Sunday school setting and there tends to always be that child that raises his or her hand and says, call on me, 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 me. But it almost seems like a trick question here. It's like a teacher asking, well, who is humble among you? And anyone that raises their hand knows that they've failed the test. And so you can almost read the passage and think, well, am I supposed to raise my hand? Wise and understanding among you? I mean, because if I'm raising my hand, well, then maybe I've proved that I'm foolish and ignorant. Well, the question is really meant to be more of a challenge. And if you understand how James's teaching works, he's often challenging. He speaks very directly. But all the way back from chapter 2, what we've been pursuing is his direct teaching that is little more than prove it. Well, you say you have faith, prove it with your works. And then we noticed last week in the first half of chapter 3, you say you have faith, well, well, prove it with your words. And now you say you have wisdom. He's going to say, prove it with your life. For notice verse 13, as he continues, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So, prove it. Are you wise and full of understanding? We'll show your good conduct, or we might translate that more in our contemporary conduct as uh, contemporary context as something like lifestyle. Uh, older conversation would be the older translations would speak a bit as the good conversation, just the way of life that are done in wisdom's meekness. And you don't want to miss how James has already underscored the emphasis and necessity of, of meekness in the Christian life at the end of chapter one, and he brings it once again to the fore here with what wisdom is. It seems almost as though in its essence, show your wisdom in wisdom's meekness. I would imagine that you would agree that few things condemn the ways of the world as the Bible's emphasis on meekness. You know, certainly in James's context there in the first century, meekness was not something that you valued. Meekness was not something that you pursued because, of course, the great virtue that you were to pursue was might, not meekness. Meekness belonged to the ignoble servant class, not those elite of society. But here comes God's word along the way in that very culture saying, know what you value greatly, esteem, prize, pursue is, is, is meekness. And it's going to work out for us in the coming verses just how it is that wisdom can be said to be meek. But we need to understand just right from the outset what meekness actually is. Because it's not as the world would have you think about it, as though meekness is some form of weakness. Meekness is part of the majesty of the Christian life that is lived in submission to God and His Word because the ancient idea that this word communicates is something like strength under control. So it's not weakness. It's actually someone who has 
power, who has energy, but it's restrained. Uh, another synonym that's linked to it actually pictures a young colt that's being broken in. You're ready to burst in all of his strength and energy, but he's in submission to the master. In the same way, the Christian life, when it's lived in meekness, is very much a life of strength in the spirit, but it's submitted to God's will and to God's word. I wonder if this year if you might pray for meekness. Parents, I wonder if you're training your children to understand the importance of, of meekness in the Christian life. So important is it that James says, prove your wisdom with the meekness of wisdom. That's the demand for it. But you'll notice verse 14 through 18, it's primarily our text is about the difference between wisdoms. Earlier this week, I was speaking with a few men in the church and we had, after reading a book together, we had gotten on this topic somehow of great sports rivalries. And I was was telling these brothers that you don't even know the greatest rivalry that belongs to world sport today because it happens all the way down in Argentina. It's this match between Boca Juniors and River Plate. Two rivals in this small neighborhood of Buenos Aires. So full of animosity. So full of divisive tension that visiting fans are not allowed into the opponent's stadium when they host this derby match, lest they not come out alive. And that still happens in the year of our Lord, 2022. And so if you ever were to make your way down to that area of the world, you'll notice that it in every way is a divided neighborhood. There's a divided loyalty. It works its way out not just into sports, but into politics, into speech, into the kinds of vocations you take. That this rivalry is evident for all to see. And in the same way, James is going to tell us it's a rivalry in terms of two schemes, two systems of wisdom. It's a rivalry. It's a difference. That's manifest for all to see. So you notice what we find in verse 14 through 16 is what I'm calling worldly wisdom. What he calls is wisdom from below. And I want to summarize this wisdom, this false wisdom with four simple words. You notice number one, it's selfish. Worldly wisdom is selfish. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. If you skip down to verse 16, he emphasizes the same once again for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. So if you just kind of think about that in a summary fashion, what he's telling us is that this earthly wisdom, the wisdom that is from below is a wisdom centered on self. It's about your preferences, your desires, your ambitions, your goals. It's always, therefore, zealous for self. It's not like the men of old in the Old Testament that were zealous for God's glory, but there's this zealous ambition, there's this even this zealous jealousy to protect what you so desperately want, what you believe that you so desperately need. So it's selfish, but you want to notice, number two, that worldly wisdom is said to be satanic. Look at verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And no person can serve two masters, Jesus Christ tells us. You can't serve self and a savior at the same time. You can be sure, therefore, that Satan, your vaunted enemy, and the foe of God's people is always tempting through his strategies and schemes for self to grow in your own heart, not just that. It's also said to be something that earns 
His smiles, it's demonic, this worldly wisdom that targets the self. You know, kids, it's a striking language that James so often uses, but you can think about it here. Did you know it's possible that kids, you can live in such a way that you make the demons smirk because they're glad that you're living that way? Worldly wisdom, it's selfish, it's satanic, it's also full of strife and sin. Look at verse 16. As it continues, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Language there for disorder, it's actually kind of communicating this idea of restlessness. It's kind of restlessness that always leads to division. It always leads to confusion. It's restlessness that leads to rebellion against God's law as those who are worldly wise practice every vile thing before the Lord. You know, I trust it's not true, especially those of you who are students, that you could ever walk into a local congregation, perhaps in ways you can't fully put into words. You just walk away and think, oh, that's a very divided people. Or maybe you've been in such a setting before, and it's almost as though James seems to be writing to Christians enduring such difficulty and such division as he's ongoing into the next chapter, going to bring to light this idea of why are there divisions and quarrels among you? You want to be sure to know that whenever a church, a congregation like our own, has struggles with division, perhaps confusion, disorder, it may just be nothing more than worldly wisdom has found too much of a foothold in our midst. So it's selfish, it's satanic, it's full of strife and full of sin. That's worldly wisdom. What about heavenly wisdom? You'll notice verse 17. It gives us seven traits of heavenly wisdom. Verse 17 begins, the wisdom from above is first pure. So you see that uh, purity is the priority. You know, I would imagine that for some of you in our current context, when you hear this word pure, you might immediately think of sexual purity because it's often how it's used in our time and place. And it's totally true that heavenly wisdom is pure with sexual ethics. But the word is actually much more linked to just holiness. It's the root word is the same it's holiness of life. It's, it's purity that means keeping oneself stained. I'm sorry, keeping oneself away from the stains of the world and the flesh and the devil. So it's pure. Notice, secondly, it's peaceable. It's peaceable. It shouldn't be surprising that if worldly wisdom is full of restlessness that leads to division disorder, then heavenly wisdom is going to be peaceable. Always bringing peace to the strife. Mercy to those who need it. Thirdly, you'll notice it's gentle. It's gentle. That word is actually somewhat difficult to translate into English because it's why a number of translations would render it something like gentle or rational or reasonable or fair or equitable. Uh, but surely it's one of those words that you know it when you see it. You know it when you meet it. You know it when you greet it. If a person is gentle, if a person has that kind of reasonableness, which even leads into what we're told is next. Number four, it's open to reason. Open to reason. You know, kids, Satan's always going to tempt you to think as though you know everything. That you know what is right. And worldly wisdom is going to mean you are closed off. You won't listen to other perspectives. Yet the way of Christ, the way of heavenly wisdom is being open to instruction. Being open to correction. Being open to the truth. It goes on to tell us, notice number five, that heavenly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. 
earlier this week, Emily had returned from you know, one of these large grocery runs that sometimes happen in the family. And when she parked the car in the garage, there was some kind of a summons of, all right, help unload the groceries. And if you were just kind of a casual observer from the street in our neighborhood at that time, you would have seen for the next few minutes just marching back and forth, you know, from the garage to the house, the train of, of stone kids with arms full of goods and groceries from the store. And it's the same kind of idea that belongs to heavenly wisdom. It's this march of the Christian life that's always full, hands and hearts full of mercy and, and good Fruits, fruits that it doesn't describe, but no doubt fruits that include everything that we're talking about here and the fruit of the Spirit. You'll notice, sixthly, that heavenly wisdom is impartial. Okay, so what that means is that wisdom doesn't have favorites. It's not biased towards a particular person in that way or a particular truth in that way. It's objective. And finally, it's said to be, notice, seventhly, it's sincere. Uh, you might know that in, in Jane's time, the, obviously the antonym to sincerity would be hypocrisy. And the original hypocrites, they belonged to the realm of the theater. Because hypocrites were actors. They were those who wore masks. They were those who, of course, pretended to be someone that they're not. And those who walk in the wisdom that comes down from above, those who walk in heavenly wisdom and God's wisdom are those who are sincere. They're genuine to who they are and don't pretend to be otherwise. And just to make sure that we didn't miss the emphasis he places on peace, notice verse 18, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice that agricultural metaphor that you often find in God's word of, of sowing seed. And you think about it in your own heart and life. Are, are you pictured here as a person of heavenly wisdom that just a scattering peace everywhere you go. You know that parable of Jesus Christ in the Gospels where it seems as though the sower is going out and sowing the Gospel and he's just fleeing the Gospel anywhere and everywhere. Good soil, bad soil, doesn't matter. Just Gospel everywhere. And the picture here is quite the same, isn't it? It's a harvest of righteousness that follows in people of heavenly wisdom sowing peace wherever they go. Would your home be known by this kind of, of wisdom? What kind of wisdom best defines and describes your life? Worldly wisdom or heavenly wisdom? You know, if you were with us earlier this morning in the morning service, we were talking about Solomon's Psalm of Ascent, number 127. We mentioned how Solomon was you know, renowned for his wisdom. And of course, I trust that many of you, if not all of you, know the story of how Solomon got his wisdom. You know, he was this young king. You can find this story in 1 Kings chapter one, uh, chapter 3. I'm sorry. And it was there where he was sleeping at Gibeon. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream and, and said, Ask for whatever you want, and I will give it. And whenever I've read that portion of Scripture, largely in my annual Bible reading plan, you know, it's a good place to pause and think, what would I have asked if the Lord appeared to me? I certainly don't expect tonight to be woken up in a dream and the Lord tell me, here's your blank check, just cash it in. Whatever you want, here you go. But perhaps what immediately comes to your mind, if you examine your heart honestly and, and humbly, does reveal what you most desperately desire. Well, Solomon, of course, asked for wisdom. He says, I need discernment between good and evil, for who can govern a people as great as this? 
And the Lord tells us there was a noble request. It was an honorable request. And as we begin to close, I want you to notice two final things from this passage related to your life and what I trust is a growing life of wisdom. Number one, you must pray for wisdom. You must pray for wisdom. I trust it's not too simplistic to say such. If you even glance back to chapter 1, you'll notice how James almost began here. He was telling us in verse 2 and 3, really also verse 4, about the role that suffering and affliction, trials and tests play in the Christian life. And this is something that God uses to grow us in Christ-likeness, to make sure that we lack nothing. But if you glance back to James 1 verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What a wonderful assurance. It genuinely is a blank check of a promise, isn't it? Ask the Lord for wisdom. He's generous. He delights to give it to his people. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, give me wisdom? Well, you see, not just to pray for wisdom... Uh, We're told also, I think in chapter 3, to prioritize wisdom. If you glance back to verse 13, this question that begins, Who is wise and understanding among you? A number of scholars throughout the ages have often wondered if James is actually having in mind these teachers that began chapter 3, because the language of wise and understanding was something like Jewish code words for teachers. And what you need to know in this church, we're getting ready to come into the new year of evaluating men for ministry in just a few weeks' time. You as a congregation will vote on potential officers, elders and deacons in this church. The way it works out in our congregation is come February, you'll have the opportunity to nominate men to serve as elders and deacons in this church. And I wonder what you will be looking for in their life. Oh, you prioritize as important in the life of your teachers and leaders. You know, in every way, what God has given you in verse 17 and 18 is a rather succinct but quite comprehensive list of the kind of men that you must have leading in your church. So pray not just for your own path of wisdom. I pray also that God would make this church full of men who are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, that they're impartial and sincere. And don't ever forget, of course, that wisdom is not this abstract spiritual reality. It is a person. For we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus Christ has become God's wisdom to us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, that it's in Christ Jesus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So it truly is that gloriously simple. The Christian life is one of showing your faith and what you do. Showing your faith in what you say. Showing your wisdom in how you live. Which means a little more than praying. For more of Christ's light. His love. His life. Prioritizing Him in your own daily ministry. And you too will grow in the heavenly wisdom. That's required of God's people. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do confess that we are so often wise in our own eyes and we satisfy our sin and ourself by pursuing our own preferences and passions. Lord, do give us this wisdom that comes down from above, wisdom that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may always 
live in such a way that brings you the glory that you alone are due. And we pray it in your perfect and all-wise name. Amen.